0: The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, here we are, and another week has flown by, hasn't it? It seems like I was just uh, talking to you guys a couple of minutes ago, but it was a week ago. A lot has happened uh, this past week. We'll talk about one study that has really garnered headlines about nanoplastics in bottled water. But uh, first as usual, let me throw out a couple of questions that you can puzzle over. First one, who uttered the line, the history of the world, my sweet, is who gets eaten and who gets to eat? I wanna know who said that line. The history of the world, my sweet, is who gets eaten and who gets to eat? And uh, also last week, I asked you a question about the link between the US Constitution, that is the written constitution and oak trees, and you very correctly and cleverly got the answer that it had to do with the ink that is made from the galls, these knobs that grow on oak trees. Well, today I'm going to ask you another question about the US Constitution. What is the link between sheep and the US Constitution? I'm talking about the written constitution. So we're looking for the link between sheep and the US constitution. All right, now to the story that uh, dominated science this past week, when a group of researchers at Columbia University uh, came up with what has been called a trailblazing study, uh, when they discovered the presence of about 200,000 particles nano sized of plastic in a liter of bottled water well let's have a little bit of background here Um, you know analytical chemists of course keep coming up with techniques to find smaller and smaller amounts of substances in water food and in the environment now they are Very adept at finding substances down past the part per trillion level. Well, just to give you an idea. So I want you to get a mental picture here. Imagine holding some substance the size of a piece of grain of sand, a grain of sand. Now that that is so a grain of sand is so small that it is hardly visible by the naked eye. Imagine throwing that into an Olympic-sized swimming pool filled with water. Well, when that little grain of sand dissolves, then you'll have a concentration of one part per trillion in that Olympic-sized swimming pool. If you like a better analogy, think of the width of a credit card and its relative distance to that between the earth and the moon. So the size of the width of a credit card <clears throat> compared with the distance between the Earth and the Moon—that is one part per trillion. So <clears throat> obviously, analytical chemists get a lot of credit for being able to detect substances <clears throat> that are so small, way, way smaller <clears throat> than the width of, uh, of a human hair. So they were able to detect two hundred thousand particles of nanoplastic each of those particles smaller than uh, uh, 100 nanometers, and a nanometer is 10 to the minus ninth of a meter. I mean, unbelievably uh, small. And uh, they can detect this. Okay, well, now let's try to get a handle on you know what this really means. So although the ability to detect such nanoplastics is relatively recent, We've known since the 1980s that these things, especially in the size of microplastics, which are bigger, they're more than hundred nanometer size, that they've been found in all kinds of natural waters, rivers and lakes, and then particularly the, the ocean. And they have uh, numerous origins. Uh, you know, anytime that you discard a plastic bottle or cutlery or a plastic straw, a shopping bag, uh, some food container, or a condom, this can end up in water systems. And then where they are exposed to ultraviolet light from the sun and they get a pounding from the waves, eventually they break down into tinier and tinier and tinier little pieces. The larger of these tiny pieces are the microplastics and the smaller ones are the nano uh, plastics. Now, the question about toxicity here, is particularly pertinent to nanoplastics because these are small enough to invade tissues and organs and also individual cells. I mean, this has been shown in the laboratory. And also in rodents, in mice, for example, nanoplastics interfere with fetal development and they increase the risk of Parkinson's disease. Now, any time that we are looking at substances that can enter a human cell, uh, that of course is indeed a cause for concern. Now, there's another reason that we worry about these things, because plastics have the ability to attract to their surface all kinds of substances. So, for example, pesticide residues that may be present in water will be attracted to the surface of these bits of plastic. and. In that way, they get ingested by us. And some of these uh, chemicals are endocrine disruptors. That is that they have hormone-like activity. And of course, we worry about that because anything that can behave like a hormone can upset the hormone balance in our our body. And uh, as you probably know, there are all kinds of studies that have linked these so-called endocrine disruptors that are found in in plastics to uh, the drop in, uh, in uh, fertility, among men, and also to many other uh, diseases. Anyway, uh, the bottom line is that there's no escape from nanoplastics and uh, the chemicals that they contain, because they are shed from all the plastics that are ingrained in our lives. The pharmaceutical, personal care products, sporting equipment, clothing, food production, electronics industries could not exist without the use of plastics. And we wouldn't have our airplanes, our cars, hospitals couldn't function, we wouldn't have cell phones. All of these things use plastics. So there's no doubt that benefits of plastics outweigh associated risks, but those risks are not zero. So just how big are these risks? Well, at this point, we have to introduce the difference between hazard and risk. I've talked about this before, but it's important to keep repeating this hazard is the innate property of a substance to do harm it cannot be changed i think we can assume that chemicals found in plastics at a high enough dose can do some harm but risk is a function of not only hazard but also extent of exposure so what is our exposure to nanoplastics by drinking a liter of bottled water Well, a particle of nanoplastic weighs somewhere between 10 to the minus 12 and 10 to the minus 15 grams. When we make a calculation, suppose we have as much as 300,000 nanoparticles in a liter of water. That total weight would be about three times 10 to the minus eight grams. Now to put that into perspective, a grain of sand weighs roughly 10 to the minus six grams. So by drinking a liter of bottled water, the weight of plastic consumed would be about 1 100th one the weight of a grain of sand. Can that be harmful? Very likely not. But what if we consume a liter of that water every day? Is it possible that the nanoparticles accumulate in our tissue to an extent that they can cause some sort of harm? We absolutely have no data on which to build a theory. We just don't know. At this point, We just cannot say whether nanoplastics in bottled water pose a risk. My guess is that in comparison with all the other risks we face in life, if there's any here, it would be a very minor one. But if the study that hit the headlines with the finding of all those nanoparticles deters some people from buying bottled water, well, that's fine with me. The bottles are an environmental disaster. They use a petroleum and non-renew- non-renewable resource. They pollute natural water systems when they get discarded instead of being recycled. And they have no health benefits over filtered tap water. So indeed, this study by the Columbia University researchers can be justly termed trailblazing because of the sophisticated analytical techniques that they developed to detect such tiny, tiny particles. But as far as toxicity goes, my opinion is, that there's no firestorm here. Maybe there are a few smoldering embers. We'll keep an eye on this. But uh, as I said, compared with everything else in life, the risks of bottled water are not highly significant. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Hey, 514-790-0800. I forgot to tell you that that's the number to call if you have an answer to my questions. And you can also text your questions and comments to 514800. And I know that you guys are just in love with texting these days. So our text address is 514800. But where would we be with the show if we didn't have Kenny on the line? And of course, we do. Hi, Kenny. Good afternoon, Hi, Dr. Joe. How are you doing? <laughs> okay, so what do you have for us today? I, I, the, oh, the question from last week, what is the link between U.S. Constitution and sheep? Yes. Well, they, 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 the links between they have they made from sheepskin. I don't wonder if came from slavery. Well, all people have slavery. I don't know if can make from sheepskin, right? It, yes, the U.S. Constitution is written on parchment, which is made from sheepskin. Very good. You got that right. So you're, you're up to your record, you actually did get this one right. Okay, thanks very much for, for uh, informing us of that. And indeed the link between the sheep and US Constitution is that it was written on parchment from sheepskin. And the term parchment in general is used for any animal skin which has been prepared for writing or for pr- uh, printing. Uh, parchment has been made for centuries and usually calf, goat, sheepskin. Then there's something else, vellum, and that's from the French word veau uh, for uh, uh, sheep for, for veal, and uh, that refers to parchment that is made from calf skin. Uh, actually, the making of parchment is a very involved business because after the skin is removed from the animal and any hair or flesh is cleaned away, it has to be stretched on a wooden frame and while it is stretched the parchment maker scrapes the surface of the skin with a special curved knife in order to create tension in the skin scraping is alternated by wetting and drying the skin the parchment is scraped wetted and dried several times to bring it to the right thickness and tautness Uh, but it makes for a very tough surface that keeps a long time much much longer than uh, paper incidentally the parchment paper that you use in your kitchen is 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 just what it says parchment paper it has nothing to do with um, animal skin all right so that's it Uh, we got that answer uh, correct and uh, so let me um, uh, throw out another uh, question to go along with the one that i still have outstanding which is that The history of the world, my sweet, is who gets eaten and who gets to eat. I wanna know who said that. And here's a new question. In scientific history, for what is the first sacred war that was fought between two Greek city-states in the sixth century BC, famous? So we're talking about a war fought between two Greek city-states in the sixth century BC, which was known as the first sacred war, but in terms of the history of science, uh, it is famous. Question is, for what is it famous? Uh, as you guys probably know, I'm a big hockey fan. I watch a lot of hockey games. And, you know, sometimes thoughts come into my mind when I'm watching that. And, and I was watching uh, Edmonton Canadians game last night and uh, the. Uh, Helmet came off one of the goalies at one point. So it started me thinking, you know, back to the old days when I first started to watch, when the goalies wore no masks. And when we think about that today, I mean, it's pretty incredible. I think it's pretty incredible that nobody died. Anyway, uh, let me go back to those days and give you a little bit of history here. It was on the 1st of November in 1959, spectators in Madison Square Garden sat patiently as they waited for Jacques Plante to get stitched up after being hit in the face by an Andy Bathgate shot. Uh, For those of you who are senior enough to remember Andy Bathgate, you know that he had a pretty good slap shot. Uh, Plante, of course, was the great Montreal Canadiens goalie, maybe the greatest of all time, And he had been hit in the face by a puck and had to go off the ice for repairs really wasn't unusual at the time but plant had had enough of the facial cuts and when he reappeared after being patched up in the dressing room he stunned the crowd by sporting a mask he looked pretty bizarre but at the moment hockey changed forever today we inconceivable for a goalie to appear without facial protection Hard to imagine for us that at one time, goalies faced that frozen piece of rubber with nothing on their face but sweat. Actually, Plant wasn't the first goalie to wear a mask. Way back in the 1930s, Clint Benedict, playing for the old Montreal Maroons, had his bell rung by a Howie Morenz shot. And he responded by trying a mask adapted from one worn by sparring boxers but soon gave it up because it impaired his vision. Plant's breakthrough was made possible by an advance in technology. By 1959, fiberglass had come into use. and This material was composed of a plastic called polyester, which was reinforced with glass fibers. Glass fibers have a long history. The ancient Phoenicians and Egyptians were already adept at drawing molten glass into thin fibers but it was a lucky accident in the 1930s that resulted in a practical process. A chemist at the Corning Glass Company was attempting to cool two pieces of glass he had welded together with a jet of compressed air. The glass shattered into a shower of glass fibers. These fibers proved to be just the thing to reinforce the DuPont Company's newly invented polyester. Stuff could be melted and then molded into virtually any shape. And that was the stuff used to make Jacques Plante's first mask. And soon, goalies were wearing custom-made masks. This involved putting a nylon stocking over one's head, covering the face with Vaseline, and breathing through a straw while a cast was made of the face. Not favored by goalies. Luckily today, this is no longer necessary. Modern reinforced plastics have allowed one-piece mask helmet combinations to be created the choice of material now is kevlar the same stuff used in bulletproof vests reinforced not by glass fibers but super strong carbon fiber never again will a goalie have to leave the ice to be stitched up masks which today can cost up to fifteen hundred dollars have also become works of art with goalies having theirs painted in various imaginative ways So today, goalies are more attractive and better protected. But I don't think there's one that can play quite as well as Jacques Plante did in his um, rickety old mask. And when you're watching a game, just uh, watch for how often it is that a goalie gets hit on the mask. It is not a rare occurrence. And in the old days, that would result in them going off and getting stitched up. And you may, you may remember when Jerry Cheevers, Boston goalie, first started to wear a mask, he painted it with sort of uh, uh, marks with all the stitches that he would have gotten had he not been wearing that mask. And uh, pretty soon that mask was pretty well covered with uh, the little cuts that he would have gotten if he had gotten hit in the face but i'm still you know surprised that in those uh, pre-mask days no goalie was ever critically injured by being you know hit in the head with a puck those pucks travel pretty fast and maybe not uh, uh quite as fast as they do now, because the players today are bigger and stronger than they ever were, Uh, but nevertheless, uh, even back then, they were able to unleash a shot that could have been uh, lethal. Okay, so uh, I'm still looking for answers to my question. In scientific history, for what is the first sacred war fought between two Greek city-states in the 6th century BC famous? And I would like to know who uttered the line The history of the world, my sweet, is who gets eaten and who gets to eat. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check what's going on out there, and we'll be right back. This is the voice of Montreal, CJAD 800. I'm glad that we have at least uh, one fan of musicals out there who was able to identify the line that I asked, the history of the world, my sweet, is who gets eaten and who gets to eat. That line is uttered by Sweeney Todd in Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Why is he such a demon? Because he cooks up pies that are made from humans anyway it's a great musical great music and uh, it is sweeney todd who utters that line all right we've gotten rid of that one Uh, so of course i have to replace that question and i'll replace it with this one what is added to butter to make cultured butter what is added to butter to make cultured butter and We still have hanging out there in scientific history for what is the first sacred war fought between two Greek city-states in the 6th century B.C. famous. 514-790-0800, that's the number you want to call, whether you have a question or a a comment. I think Jerry is on the line. Jerry. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. So I think it's the uh, first use of chemical warfare when they poison the water with hellbores. Yes that is true and how do you know this Well I was uh, I have to admit long live google so I was able to Aha, go through long live google your, is, is right right Yeah and it is a, a great story uh, of course one always has to be a little bit circumspect about anything that happened in 6th century BC because you know we're not even so accurate about history that happened just a few years ago never mind uh, thousands of years ago but anyway the story is that that uh, in the siege of the uh, city of kira uh, which was in in ancient greece uh, the besiegers were able to poison the water that they were drinking. And there are several versions of the story, but uh, the one that is uh, most often reported is that uh, they poisoned the water that went into the pipes from which the people in the city drew their water by putting hellebore in there. Now, hellebore is a plant. And it is certainly true that all parts of that plant are poisonous. They contain cardiac glycosides, uh, which can have an effect on the heart. But more importantly, if they, uh, it is the gastroenteritis that is caused by a compound called ranunculin, which is also present in hellebore and that causes diarrhea. And the story is that the uh, defenders of the city uh, suffered diarrhea to such an extent that they were unable to defend uh, the city, and uh, eventually everyone ended up being slaughtered. Anyway, that's the story, and it usually is told as you know in the context of this being the first type of chemical warfare. So it's interesting, and as you know, we like to say when it comes to these kind of things, it may even be true. All right, so that's the the answer to to that one. Uh, So that just leaves us one other question, what is added to butter to make cultured uh, butter? Okay, let's talk about uh, something else. Uh, Because we were talking about musicals of Sweeney Todd, and you may know that this morning on the trivia show, I did ask a, a question And uh, the question about uh, what musical uh, has in it something about uh, eating a chicken if you're sick. And the answer to that, of course, was Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, As the good book says, when a poor man eats a chicken, one of them is sick. That line is from Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof. And the village rabbi's son overhears this and asks, where does the book say that? And then Tevye responds, all right, all right. It doesn't exactly say that, but someplace it has something about a chicken. And you know what? That actually is true. Uh, because the good book to which Tevye refers is the Talmud, which is a, a collection of uh, writings by Jewish sages in the, the fifth century. And it just talks about the ethics, philosophy, religious observance, and dietary laws and traditions and serves as a guide for the conduct of daily Jewish life. And one of the uh, discussions in the Talmud mentions the chicken of Rabbi Abba, which for medical reasons was cooked so thoroughly that it completely dissolved. Now, doesn't that sound like he's talking about chicken soup as medicine? So let me tell you a little bit about that, the idea of using chicken soup as medicine. Believe it or not, the original idea uh, did not come from the Talmud, but it came from the Chinese. There's a Chinese document that dates back to about the second century BC, where uh, chicken soup is described as a yang food. It warms the body and has an invigorating effect. but. Uh, I think the most interesting stories about chicken soup take us back to Moses Maimonides. And he's the 12th century uh, Jewish philosopher and physician. He, he lived in uh, uh, Cordoba, which today would be in, uh, in Spain. And uh, the, the Jews lived uh, quite happily at that time in, uh, in Spain until the city was conquered by the Almohades, which was an extremist sect that forced Christians and Jews to convert to Islam or face death. So the uh, family of Maimonides had to to flee, and they eventually ended up in Egypt. And that's where uh, Moses became a highly respected physician, although we don't know exactly what training that he had, uh, mostly from reading the writings of Galen and Hippocrates. And, uh, but there's no question that he was a physician who was ahead of his time, because he emphasized the treatment of clean, Air, clean water, healthy diet, and exercise, and he stated that a physician should begin with simple treatment, trying to cure by hygiene and diet before he administers drugs. Now, this was back in the twelfth century; pretty innovative. But he also talked about chicken soup, and um, obviously, he didn't know anything about about bacteria or or, or you know uh, illness. Uh, but he said that um, chicken soup or the broth of chickens, as he said, rectified corrupted humors, especially black bile that causes melancholy. In those days, he believed that the uh, health of a body was a function of the balance of the body's four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile, and that chicken soup could restore any problems with those, uh, those humors and uh, it's uh, hard to know you know just how uh, the stories about chicken soup got transmitted to early russia in the 1900s the area of Fiddler on the roof but the mythology of chicken soup as medicine was well established by that time and uh, the soup had become a staple at the shabbat dinner now the question is 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 this term mythology the correct term to use could there be some science to the soup's supposed benefits? Well, you know, it's, this is something that that uh, merits uh, a touch of uh, exploration here. And uh, the, the question about whether or not chicken soup actually has some scientific basis has tickled the fancy of a number of researchers. Why? Well, I guess it's an interesting scientific project. And uh, I suspect that there's also a bit of uh, motivation because of the chance to garner headlines, something that any story about chicken soup is guaranteed to do. So is there some science to chicken soup? You'll have to wait, because first we're going to check traffic. When I asked a question about how you make cultured butter, I I knew that I would get some uh, humorous, witty answers, and uh, I did. Uh, Someone said that uh, uh, you play symphony music in front of the, butter i thought i was going to be told that you have to read stories to the butter of course the answer is that you make cultured butter by adding microbial cultures to it very much like we make yogurt kefir buttermilk etc and it gives a nice tangy taste to the butter All right, somebody also asked, is it true that rice can't be eaten the next day because of buildup of mold? As a Japanese study says, it's linked to heart problems. Well, there's something to this. It has nothing to do with mold. That's the wrong word. We're talking about bacteria. And uh, I've never seen anything about heart problems, but certainly uh, you can have gastrointestinal problems like diarrhea. Now the story here is that rice contains a uh, um, bacterium called Bacillus cereus. And uh, while that bacterium is killed uh, when you boil the rice, uh, the spores that form these bacteria, which are inactive forms of bacteria, uh, are not killed by heat. So once you've cooked rice and you leave it alone at room temperature for too long at a time, more than a couple of hours before refrigerating, the spores will release bacteria, will become alive and release bacteria. And of course the bacteria form toxins and those toxins can cause diarrhea. So you need to get that rice into the fridge as quickly as possible. But uh, the question about whether or not you can eat it the next day, uh, I wouldn't keep uh, refrigerated rice more than, more than a day or two because even at refrigeration temperatures, uh, those spores can release some, uh, some bacteria. So with, with rice, you cook it, cool it down as quickly as you can, and uh, don't keep the refrigerated rice uh, more than a day. I mean, the chance that you're going to get sick from it is not very high, but you know it's so easy to avoid that risk, so why not uh, avoid it? Okay, let's get back to our chicken soup and the uh, stories about its medicinal value and whether, you know it can treat a common cold. Well, the first uh, scientists to try to address this were uh, at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami, and that was back in 1978. And they decided to investigate whether, quote, chicken soup, a treatment long advocated by Jewish mothers, uh, was effective for alleviating upper respiratory tract ailments. Now, this was kind of an interesting study. They had um, uh, fifteen uh, healthy patients, and uh, they devised uh, a rather, you know, elaborate and ingenious way to measure the speed with which mucus flowed out of their nose and with which air entered their nose. They used various tubes and little Teflon discs inserted into the nose and optical equipment and oscilloscopes. And uh, that's very sophisticated uh, equipment. Anyway, the subjects were asked to consume either hot water, hot chicken soup, or cold water. And they either sipped these beverages or they drank them through a straw. Uh, Why through a straw? Uh, Well, that was to try to eliminate any vapors that came came out so that you could isolate whether or not you were inhaling whatever benefit there may be or you had to drink it. Anyway, sipping hot water or hot chicken soup both increased nasal mucus velocity. As the chicken soup uh, consumed by straw but hot water by straw did not. None of the treatments changed the nasal airflow. Although this study received a great deal of publicity, with articles highlighting the increased flow as a result of consuming chicken soup, the fact that hot water had the same effect was hardly mentioned. Well then, not much happened until 2000, when a study with the alluring title Chicken soup inhibits neutrophil chemotaxis in vitro, once again captured the media's attention. So what are neutrophils? They're a type of white blood cell, and they're attracted to the site of an infection by signals that are released from cells that have been infected and damaged by bacteria or viruses. And these neutrophils then engulf the invading microbe and break it down. When these breakdown products the body tries to eliminate, that's when you get the runny nose, the sneezing, the congestion. These are the classic symbols of a cold. Chemotaxis is the ability of cells to move in a particular direction in response to a stimulus, such as chemicals emitted by a bacterium or virus. And in vitro, of course, means in glass, refers to experiments done in the lab, as opposed to using animals or people. So. The researchers found that chicken soup significantly inhibits neutrophil migration, uh, and that means that these protective white blood cells move towards the invading virus more slowly, which means that they will not have as much chance to engage the invader, break it down, and you know result in the uh, breakdown product having to be eliminated so the fact is that you can actually you know based upon this experiment think that symptoms will be uh, reduced well first of all uh, a study in glassware with neutrophils immersed in chicken soup cannot be extrapolated to what may happen in a cold sufferer it's hard to even guess if whatever active ingredient there may be in the soup makes it from the stomach to the respiratory tract. Hard to imagine that it does. And while slowing neutrophil activity may lessen symptoms, now think about that. It also lessens the time to destroy the invading microbe because and the neutrophils, the purpose is to, to attack the microbe. And it is that attack that causes the symptoms. So if you reduce the attack, you reduce the symptoms, but the microbes also stay around longer. So really very scant evidence for chicken soup as medicine. Well, if chicken soup isn't that great for the body, can it do something for the soul? (laughs) Well, never mind what we mean by the soul. But anyway, researchers at the University of Buffalo think so. They hypothesized that the real value of chicken soup is in quote, Acting as a comfort food because of repeated exposure in the presence of relational partners. (laughs) That is, people generally eat chicken soup together with friends and relatives, and they remember that. So, in this study, they showed that subjects who were lonely because of a fight with a friend or breakup with a romantic partner found solace in chicken soup because the soup was acting as a social surrogate for the missing company. Well, (laughs) strange kind of study. Anyway, all of this leaves us with the sense that the sense of chicken soup uh, being scientific, I mean, the science there is really soft and labeling it as Jewish penicillin is more whimsy than fact. But the evidence is that the soup tastes great. And I think we can take comfort in that. Not much comfort for the chicken, but comfort for the people. So, you know, there's reason to enjoy chicken soup. It tastes good. Hot beverages actually do make you feel better when when you have a cold. And uh, not because of the signs that I said, but because they do soothe the throat. Uh, and inhaling any hot vapor uh, does clear up uh, congestion. And there's another reason to enjoy chicken soup, in which you've cooked some carrots, parsnips, onions, celery root, garlic let me go back to tevye you know what he said it's a tradition <laughs> all right another tradition is that i'm uh, every month at the eleanor london public library in Cote st luke and i talk to you about interesting things and i'll be there tomorrow at two o'clock talking about the wonders of anesthetics and how they can uh, conquer pain pain is a terrible thing so you are all invited Two o'clock, Eleanor London Public Library, which is just across the street from the uh, Cartier Cavendish, which used to be called the Cavendish Mall in Colt St. Luke. So we hope to see you there. And uh, I think I can promise you a pretty interesting and pretty entertaining talk on the history of anesthesia and how it is used today. And that's it. We are out of time. But uh, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.